0: Eating it as food, um, that became very much part of my Christian life and has been all the way through. And I, I thank God for that. I thank God for that kind of. I was taught how to feed myself properly <laughs> from a very early um, time in my Christian life, a daily routine. And I, and I think there's much to commend. I just want to sort of say to us, particularly in a busy autumn term. The daily disciplines, you know, just prayer, meditation, thanksgiving, worship, solitude, celebration, community, all this kind of stuff that 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 is fairly basic, but if we neglect it, uh, we, we, we put ourselves in, in positions where we're not gazing, dwelling, inquiring, and waiting. So I want to encourage that. The other thing I want to uh, just kind of note is, um, having said that about... Bible meditation and the importance of the word, is I I actually, this might be a bit of a strange thing to say, or it might sound strange, is I'm actually quite open to the mystical. Um, And I kind of think it's pretty cool that Paul wrote Romans, and yet he also wrote about an experience when he wasn't quite sure whether he was in his body or not. I I like that. I kind of think, I wish I could have the theological... Depth to be able to pen something like Romans, and I wish I could say, do you know what happened to me last Wednesday? I just no idea whether I was in my body or out my body. I was just—I had never had that happen before. But man, alive, it was cool. should that not be the Christian life? Paul seemed didn't seem to have a problem with that, and I kind of think daily disciplines and mystical experiences. I think that's kind of a good combination. And, uh, yeah. and um, it's not a, We're not supposed to have dry kind of theoretical experiences of the Lord. I would even want to say, just in these two days, who knows what the manifest presence of God might look like. We, we, we had an elders meeting last Friday. It was a bit of a, a prayer time. And it was a bit bizarre. As we were praying for one another. And I I, I could sort of smell that. I thought, that smells like fire, fire. And I thought, perhaps there's someone next door in one of the other industrial units burning something. So I stuck my head out the window just because I didn't want to look a complete idiot, saying I can smell the presence of God. And I thought, no, it's a, tires being burnt next door. <laughs> and I, but I, no, there's nothing there, there's nothing there. I even went down to where the loos are just to have a look at, no, definitely nothing, no fire. So I thought, well, I won't say anything because I thought it may just be me. It may just have been, I don't know, aftershave or something, anyway. So we carried on, and when we then started to pray for Mike Bollinger, this intense smell of burning came, and I thought, I so love it, God, when you turn up in unusual ways. It was so obviously God. I've never had that before in a meeting. But I love it when God manifests himself in a way that makes you think, he just kind of almost like nudges you and says, I'm with you guys, I'm with you. Now, we don't chase after signs. But signs do follow the preaching of the word. That, that's how it's supposed to work, folks. You know, it's an authentication. It's God saying, I'm with you. I know you need a little bit of help. So, boom. You know. So, I just wanted to, to make that, that point. You know, that we, we, we've got to have the disciplines, but we also need to be very, very open to the unusual manifest presence of God. God is... Yeah, well, I'll come on to the first point. First point is he, he talks about then dwelling. And uh, he says um, in verse 4 One thing I've asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Now, David was hungering after something and got glimpses of something as a specially anointed king that we live in every day. He he had a glimpse of something that is ours by right. This is extraordinary. David longed to do what we're doing. He longed to dwell. He was you' ho- saying, "Oh Lord, don't let this end. I want to be in your presence every day. I want to be. I want to. I want you to position me every day." So I mean, folks, because of Christ, we are we are in the presence of God all the time. We dwell in the presence of God. This is extraordinary. This is home. This is base camp. It's not like we go in and out of God's presence. We don't live somewhere else and occasionally visit the Lord. Our resident postcode is his, is his presence. Whether we feel like it or not, whether you woke up this morning feeling as spiritual as a piece of haddock or whether you felt, you know, full of the glory of God, you are in his presence. We, he, we are his temple. It's extraordinary. And David longed for that. So, folks, don't let's be drawn to move location because of church busyness or success or thriving programs. Let's dwell. Let's dwell. Don't let's be drawn out of intimacy and dwelling with God through discouragement or disappointment or apparent non-encounter with God. And you might be here this morning facing all sorts of things and you feel a bit dry. Listen, God is still with you, even if you're not feeling his presence; He is mightily with you. We dwell. And also we must make sure we don't move from the house of trust into the house of fear. You know, uh, I, I've, a couple of times recently I felt the enemy really tried to make me afraid of things. You know, it's un, it's Slightly unusually because I'm not normally a particularly fearful person. But a couple of times I was afraid for my life at a certain point. And afraid of, of certain other things that were just pressing in on me. And I thought, this is, this is really unusual. And I thought to myself, one day I just thought to myself, do you know what, I am going to choose to live in the house of trust. I'm not going to live in the house of fear. It's my choice, but that's not my address. I don't live there. I live in the house of trust. That, that's, that's where I dwell. Because if you dwell with the Lord, what can you do but trust in the Lord and do good? That's, that's where we live. It's up to him to sort all that stuff out. So we battle with these things. Don't we? And, and, and David said, I thought I may dwell. You know, dwelling with the Lord, it's a bit like, you know, really, you can put your slippers on, open a beer, sit in the settee, relax. We're at home with God. You don't have to put on, it's not a special occasion to coming to meet with God. We're living with him every day. It's just cultivating who we are and where we live and all these things. We should feel utterly ourselves and utterly at home when we think about the fact we are dwelling with the Lord, utterly relaxed and yet engaged and also in awe. How do you do that? It can be done. How can you sit on a settee with a beer and yet be in awe of someone who could go like that and the universe disappears? That is the dwelling we live in. Extraordinary. Notice also Jesus' encouragement to be alone sometimes. It says he, in Gethsemane, he went on from his disciples and prayed alone. The Bible encourages us to go into your room alone, close the door. There's something about sometimes withdrawal from busyness and from the presence of others even for the purpose of focusing on our encounter with the presence of one. Oh, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. Just to be in him, to practice the presence of God, to quote the famous book. Just to practice learning how to endure God every single thing we ever do, every moment of every day, every activity we're engaged in, to learn how to practice the fact that we are dwelling all the days of my life. Not just the ones where I feel like it. You know, all the days of my life, I'm in the presence of God. I mean, this is ex- this is wonderful stuff, folks. Every day, today, now we are in the presence of God through Christ. I mean, this is extraordinary, and it's never going to diminish. It's never going to. He's never going to move away. And David said, "Oh, that I may dwell. Oh, that I may dwell." We don't actually have a time with God. We are with God, and we're just cultivating what we already have. That's what it is. We're not in and out of his presence. We're learning how to hear him, how to respond to him, how to partner with him, how to engage with him, how to cooperate with him, how to understand him, how to know him, but we're never apart from him. We learn things. I feel this year, particularly during these Presence of God tours, I'm learning more, even more, about how to partner with him, how to cooperate with him. But I'm also learning this. I'm never apart from him. I'm never apart from him. David's longing is our reality. Oh, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. ka We've got it. We've got it. And if we don't enjoy that, then we're missing something. David longed for what we now have. Next, he said, I want to gaze. Verse 4, that I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. To gaze in this way, I think he's speaking about... A fixed fascination with God. Let me ask you this. Are you fascinated with God? Because I, I am. I, I really am. I'm, I am I'm fascinated with him. I'm not trying to make him something that I can cope with or to improve. I'm just fascinated by him. I'm fascinated by who he says he is. I always have been. And I, I, I enjoy um, worship as my joy in who he is. Uh, and it's like it's like rejoicing in who he 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 tells me he is i don't worship we don't worship the bible we don't worship truth we don't worship the church we don't worship what god does we worship him we're fascinated with him i think he's fascinating even before he's ever done anything he's just extraordinary now sometimes there are challenges being fascinated with god when you're gazing at him you think well how can you be full of wrath and yet also be full of love. Well, to me, that's the fascination. That's the beauty of it. How, you, when you look at God, you think, how do you do that? How can you be full of righteous wrath and love at the same time? How do you do that? It's not like we say to God, well, you can't be like that. No, that is, that's what makes him fascinating. Well, how, can we yet, how can we fall in awe and yet be embraced in tenderness at the same time? That's fascinating. I think, Lord, how do you do that? Now, the reason I say that is I, in, in the world we live in at the moment, in the Christian world we live in at the moment, there are people who are trying to change God. They're trying to change him. Why? Because they're not fascinated with him how he is. So they think, well, I think we can prove, improve upon that. So we'll take that bit away because that's not really helpful in our culture. No, you've lost your fascination with God. If you're adjusting who God is, you're not actually fascinated with him in the first place. It's, it's love for who he is, even when we think, I don't understand that, but it's beautiful, because I don't understand it. We, when we try to change God, we're actually, it's actually idolatry, because we're trying to make a better one. You can't make a better God. Yeah, all his ways are just. Everything about him is praiseworthy. When the final day of judgment comes, there will be no one. There will be no one who points the finger at God and says, what you have done has been unfair. No one. Why? Because he's fascinatingly perfect in all his ways. So if we don't change him. We might say, I fall before you because I don't understand you. But if, with the moment we start to culturally change him to make him more acceptable, we miss something. We actually show ourselves to be more fascinated with man than we are with God. I'd rather handle the mystery than try and tame him into some sort of puppy dog rather than let the lion roar. Let the lion roar. Who can stand when he appears? That fascination with God. God. And David said, I want to gaze. I want to gaze upon the beauty. I mean long lingering worship on God's attributes should be what characterize our Sunday mornings i mean i when you kind of, when i I translated the Muslim call to prayer the other day just 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 to and i and I thought you know they do better than we do on a Sunday morning most of the time God is great, God is great, there is no one like him here or earth. God is great, our Sunday morning's coming. Well, I don't know what sort of a week you've had. My week's been terrible. Uh, You probably didn't feel you wanted to come this morning, but now we're here. Let's put all that beside us, and let's just ask God, no, 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 thrice no. I mean, it's awful. If I ever hear that, I will shoot you. Because it's awful, horrible, terrible stuff. We should be focused, gazing on his attributes and his nature, filled with wonder, even if the world is collapsing around us. Am I... Is this right? I mean, I may gaze upon his beauty. David didn't even come with requests. He just wanted to... uh, Enemies are camped against me, wars breaking up, but I gaze, I just gaze at you. Oh, I may gaze... And behold your beauty. Even if it doesn't work out for me. Even if I'm defeated. I want to gaze. These are the people God is drawn to. The authority of scripture we try to defend is not driven by a desire to be right. But is driven by a desire to preserve the authenticity of his self-disclosure. Just think about it. The authority of Scripture is defended, not, is, is driven not by a desire that we might be right, but it's driven by a desire to preserve the authenticity of His self disclosure. We gaze because we've seen who He is and who He says He is, and we preserve who He has revealed Himself to be in His Word. To gaze upon the self disclosure of God Almighty. It's awesome. Even if we don't understand it, and actually the fact we don't understand it proves we've probably got the right glimpse of it. Who can, who can stand? So to, to gaze implies you're not looking anywhere else for direction, clarity, truth, definition, supply, security, fulfillment. He is all, he's the source, he's the reason, he's the point, he's the beauty, he's the answer. You gaze, you gaze. Because there's nowhere else to look. You have to train yourself to do that. I have to, I have to train myself to do that. Because it doesn't come naturally to any of us. We're like headless chickens looking here, looking there. No, look look, gaze. Just gaze upon his beauty. To gaze is actually the same as to seek. Those who seek the Lord like no good thing. Often just the seeking is in itself the finding. Think about it. Then he says, to inquire, verse 4. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. The kind of book title, Good Morning Holy Spirit, might sound a bit corny, but it's actually pretty good. Because it is a bit like that. You know, to inquire. To inquire. Have you ever thought about the extraordinary privilege we have to inquire of God, actually to ask him a question? (laughs) I think we can ask God questions. He doesn't always answer them, which is rather infuriating. But then it's a little bit like a child when five minutes into a car journey on holiday saying, are we there yet? There are some questions that really just don't warrant an answer. So just, you know, just really... And I'm sure God, when we ask him, are we there yet? It's a bit like they say, oh, it's not even a question, really. Uh, but he doesn't, doesn't dismiss us. He just thinks, you've asked me a question. Actually, I can't, there is no point in me even answering what you've just asked, really. Let's just leave that. And we think, oh, God, you're not answering me. Well, you've asked him just such a dumb question. <laughs> whether he, whether he does, I spend most of my time asking God dumb questions. But I've learnt this. He likes it. He just likes to hear my pondering perplexities that make no sense to anybody else apart from me. He likes it to inquire. Not just to make requests, but to inquire. Prayer is not just, please do this, please do this. Prayer is sometimes, Lord, why? How? What about this? What do you think about that? inquire now he may not answer our questions or our requests but he will feel great love for us he may say yes and it'll strengthen our faith he may say no because he's got something better or he may say wait because there's a higher purpose and a better answer than perhaps we thought and we must never confuse his lack of answer with lack of care because god loves us he's never indifferent to our questions but like a father, sometimes that question hasn't got an answer at the moment. Um, yeah. Just I'll just read this uh, this is an excellent book. I don't think we've got it on the the, the, the stool today, but God on Mute by Pete Gregg. I really encourage you to read that. Um, just about inquiring of the Lord. This might this may just help. I, I found it helped me. Um, In the first of his Narnia Chronicles, The Magician's Nephew, which is a prequel to The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis tells the story of a boy named Digby, whose mother is dying. When, uh, not Digby, Diggory, sorry, whose mother is dying. When Diggory first encounters the great lion Aslan, he gathers his courage and asks, May I, please, will you give me some magic fruit of this country to make mother well? It's a heartrending request, a prayer of desperation. And yet at the same time, Aslan appears to ignore it completely. He had been desperately hoping that the lion would say yes. He'd been horribly afraid it might say no. But he was taken aback when it did neither. When God is silent in response to our deepest and most desperate prayers, saying neither yes with a miracle nor no with a clear sign, that would at least let us know he has heard us, it's natural to conclude that God doesn't care. But a little while later, Diggory dares to ask Aslan for help again. He thought of his mother and he thought of the great hopes he had and how they were all dying away, and a lump came to his throat and tears in his eyes and he blurted out, but please, please, won't you, can't you give me something that will cure mother? Up till then, he'd been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. Now, in despair, he looked up at its face. And what he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life, for the tawny face was bent down near his own, and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. Diggory's prayer remained unanswered, but everything had changed. Now he knew that the great lion, in whom all his hopes were resting, truly cared. Whenever we carry a burden to God in prayer, begging, please, please, won't you, can't you? And yet God remains silent. We may assume that he is unmoved as long as our eyes remain downcast reverently at his feet. But when in our pain and shame we dare to lift our gaze to study his countenance. (laughs) This is powerful stuff we find his face bent down near our own. And wonder of wonders, great shining tears are in his eyes. What an incredible revelation. Our Jewish forefathers considered God's name so holy that it was never to be pronounced or transcribed. And yet this same God invites us to speak to him and call him Abba. I'm mad alive. To inquire, to inquire, knowing he's never indifferent to our questions. He feels the pain we feel. Then lastly, verse 14, he talks about waiting for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. I've been reading this uh, helpful little book called *The Forgotten Talent* by Jay Cameron Petty. It's completely out of print. My copy's got yellow pages because um, it's, 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 it's you know just old. You can get it on um, Amazon secondhand. Uh, it cost me about £1.50. But Jay Cameron Petty um, developed a healing ministry in Scotland just after the war, and I'm uh, fascinating reading how he got started. Uh, this is a bit bizarre, but I just think it illustrates the thing about waiting. He actually went to a spiritualist medium meeting because he wanted to observe what they were doing because they seemed to be getting results. Uh, and he said this: it was, <laughs> well, he said, these spiritualist mediums were healing in the name and power of familiar spirits, not necessarily evil spirits, but discarnate <coughs> ones. It was touching to see how earnestly, patiently, and wholeheartedly they sat in silence, waiting to be controlled by familiar spirits. I thought, as I observed their endeavor of complete surrender to these spirits, that if we ministers would exercise as much patience and devote as much time in offering ourselves to the control of the Holy Spirit, there would be such a spiritual reawakening in the church as has not happened since Pentecost. By this time, I was aflame with jealousy for the honor of the Lord. Here was a movement that was doing good work for humanity professedly in the name and power of familiar spirits, which the ministry of the church should be doing in the name of Jesus Christ. Something drastic had to be done to correct this gross omission of which the church was guilty, and I resolved to do something about it. I could only offer myself to God. So I entered into what I regard as a private personal covenant with him. I didn't know whether he would recognize this covenant, but I would leave it in his hands. The terms on my side were absolute surrender of my personality, body, mind and spirit into his hands to be molded and transformed in any way necessary to make me a suitable instrument for receiving and transmitting his healing grace to the needy. It was clear that a process of complete sanctification, cleansing and purifying was necessary to make this possible under the power of the Holy Spirit. I therefore set apart a room in our home as a personal sanctuary reserved exclusively for prayer and meditation and waiting upon the Lord. Each night I went there and so under God my ministry of healing began. He recognized the value of waiting. Sometimes, and I've found this more and more again this year, I've had to learn, I'm learning so much about healing this year. I've seen more people healed this year than in the rest of my Christian life through, through the presence of God. I'm just learning a lot. I just feel so huge L plates, and I've got, I've just really, at level one, entry level, really, I, I've really still scratching at a little surface. But what I have discovered is this. Many of our meetings do not have enough time for God to move. God is not in a hurry. It's very irritating if you're trying to fit it all in by a certain time. I don't know why that is. Why can't he just condense it all? I don't know. I'm just learning that you have, sometimes you have to wait, and he won't come until he's ready. I don't know what we do about that. I'm just making an observation. And I'm trying to work out, all right, what do I do about that? Waiting is not no, it's waiting. It's not teasing. Oh, it might come. No. Waiting is purposeful, wise, and controlled response on God's part. Waiting saw the cursed fig tree come to an end the next day. Waiting draws us into dependency on who he is. Waiting enables us to say, even if, like Job did, even if he slays me, I still love him. Waiting enables us to say, like Habakkuk, even if there aren't any figs on the fig tree, vines on the vine, yeah, I will praise God. Waiting draws out of us worship that's not based on what we've got in return. Waiting purifies us for pure motives. Pure motives. Even if we have to wait all of our lives, yet we will still worship. Waiting is not consumer Christianity, McDonald's, sorry for the wait. It's worship without the need for something to prime it. Worship, it's, waiting is honoring God whether he ever does anything for us or not. uh, Waiting is because he's good and worthy and wonderful, I'll worship him, I'll honor him, I'll love him, whether he ever hears or answers my prayers. Waiting is good for our souls. It's not good for our agenda. It's adoration for who he is, not what he's done. Waiting tests the heart, strengthens the soul, equips us for the marathon that is life in a godly way. Waiting... Knows of the increase of his government, there is no end. Waiting knows that the not yet of the kingdom will one day be a finally now. Waiting, we wait, heaven waits, Jesus waits. We are all waiting for that great day when the now will be swallowed up by the not yet. Waiting is part of being a Christian, isn't it? Waiting tests our spiritual maturity and faith. Faith is about who we're trusting in, not how much power we have to do something. Faith is best expressed during wait rather than now. David had got it right. David had got it right. He'd learnt, just as we close, he'd learnt how to serve, lead, minister from intimacy where he dwelt. He gazed, he inquired, and he waited.